Anybody have your Bible? Any paperback Bible people in the room? Come on, let's go, my people. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. You are joining us, uh, if this is your first time, in the middle of a series called Only God. And we're in this series uh, really because we want to be people who live lives that only God can get the credit for. And what we mean by that is when people see the things that happen in our life, when they see uh, the fruit, to use a biblical term, that comes from our lives, we don't want them to be impressed by us. We want them to be impressed by God. We don't want them to go, wow, they're amazing. We want people to go, wow, their God is amazing. We want every ounce of glory that could come from our life to be given back to God because he's, he deserves it. And so uh, today's week three. Week one, we looked at only God for me. Week two, we looked at only God for my family. Today, we're going to look at only God for my city. Come on, does anybody love the city of Nashville? Come on, we're in the best city on the planet. This is the best city on the planet. Our football team might not be the best, but it's coming in Jesus' name. I'm believing it. Um, We're in Nashville, Tennessee, and we believe that in Nashville, we are going to see things that only God can get the credit for. And I'm so fired up to preach this message. I'm excited. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read four verses, starting in verse 35, and we're going to jump right into it. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Everybody say compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. God, we thank you for your presence. We ask that you'd speak to us through your word. We want an encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a lot of words that are scary. A lot of words that are scary. Uh, One of the scariest words I've ever heard was when I was at the dentist and he said, you have a cavity. Come on, that's a, scary, that's a scary phrase right there. You have a cavity. Uh, maybe you are like me, you're married, and you've received a text before that says, stopping by Target to get a few things. Yeah. Okay, that's a scary word. So that's a scary phrase. Um, there are two words that scare me more than any words when they are combined. Literally, I thought about this. I was like, what is the scariest set of words that I've ever heard? And, and for some reason, these words are not scary separate, but when combined, they are terrifying. It's the words home, depot. <laughs> home depot terrifies me. All right, this is our two-month anniversary, and so if you're a part of Way Church, I know we're still getting to know each other, but one of the things you need to know about your pastor is that he does not build things, he builds sermons. <laughs> All right, like, like maybe uh, my wife said amen. That was not a good place <laughs> to say amen, babe. Um, I'm not good with tools, all right? Maybe you're here and you're really good at those things. I have the mechanical prowess of a, of a potato. Uh, I, I'm not good with tools. Home Depot scares me. I literally will not enter in a Home Depot until I have listened to Oceans by Hillsong United. <laughs> like, I, I just need to bathe in the verses of those lyrics. You call me out upon the water, you know? The great unknown is terrifying. And there's this unwritten code at Home Depot. All the guys know the code. 
You don't ask for help at Home Depot. When the little nice man walks up to you with the orange apron on and he says, do you need help? You can need the most help you've ever needed in your life. But you say, no, I'm good. Because this is the unwritten code. Uh, there was one time I was at Home Depot because we moved into uh, our new house at the time and uh, the house didn't come with blinds. It was like the ultimate batteries not included uh, situation. All these windows, no blinds. And so my wife was like, will you go to Home Depot? And just immediately uh, shiver went down my spine. And so I listened to Oceans. I go to Home Depot and I walk in and I'm looking at the blinds. I'm trying to figure out the measurements. I'm trying to figure out what tools are necessary to put blinds up because I'd never put them up before. And this guy walks over to me. It's like he could smell the insecurity. And he walks over his little orange apron and he's like, can I help you, sir? And of course, I said, no, I'm good. And he didn't even flinch. It was like, like I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit speaking to him, uh, knowing I needed encouragement, but he didn't move at all. He just looked me directly in the eyes and he like begins to encourage me. I'm like, do I look like I'm really that bad with a tool bag? You know, like he's just staring right in my eyes. And, and this is what he said. He meant this as a great encouragement to me. He looked me in the eyes and he goes, man, you've got this. He said, um, he said my grandma actually was in here just a couple weeks ago. And she, I helped her pick out the right blinds and she installed the blinds by herself. Okay, four and a half hours later, while I'm in the living room bleeding because the nails are falling out of the ceiling, that was not an encouragement to me. I'm sitting there, all I can think about is, is him saying, my grandmother hung her own blinds in her house. Okay, Home Depot. Uh, we all have sayings, we all have words, we all have things that move us. And, and that's what we're talking about today when we look at Matthew chapter 9. We're, we're looking at the story of Jesus in a time in his life when he was moved. He was moved. Not by fear, because our God has nothing to fear, but he was moved, the Bible says, with compassion. Now, the word compassion in English, uh, brings a lot of different things to mind. So you could hear that someone has compassion on someone and you might think that they feel sorry for that person. You might think that they feel bad for that person. You might think that they're just you know, thoughts and prayers for that person. But the Bible was actually uh, originally written in the Greek language. And so a lot of times when um, we're looking at scripture together, it's really helpful to just go to the Greek and make sure that the English word that is used is, is the same or, or to see what differences there may, may be. And so the Greek word used for compassion is actually this word called splonknon. Amazing word. Uh, it's, it's called splonknon. And uh, this word in Greek actually implies a much deeper sense of movement than the word compassion. When Jesus looked at this crowd of people, he wasn't feeling bad for them. He wasn't feeling sorry for them. He actually was so moved with compassion that it went from being an emotion to something that he felt physically. In fact, the definition of this, we, of this Greek word splonknon is to be moved in the deepest pit of one's stomach. So Jesus looks at this crowd of people and he is so moved by what he sees that his stomach begins to ache. Now, I love Jesus. I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 21 years old. I was in college at Lee University and um, start following Jesus. And, and Jesus has radically changed my life. And so when I read that Jesus is so moved by something that he actually begins to feel it in his stomach, I want to know what 
caused Jesus to feel that way. We know from the context of Matthew chapter 9 that he's going from city to city, from house to house, from town to town, and he's actually healing every single person that wants to be healed. So just imagine if Jesus showed up to your neighborhood and the first person Jesus talked to was somebody with a broken leg. And then that person was like, Jesus, will you heal me? Jesus heals the person with the broken leg. You look outside your window. All of a sudden, the person that was in a wheelchair is running down the street. You'd be like, whoa, right? And so this is what's happening. People are, are hearing about Jesus coming to their city. They're stepping outside into their neighborhood and they're like, let's see if this Jesus guy is the real deal. And they're bringing their, their friends, their family members, others who need healing, and they're seeing if Jesus can heal them. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, heals every person that he interacts with. So we know that by the time we get to Matthew chapter nine, the end of Matthew chapter nine, when Jesus is looking at this crowd of people, his stomach is not hurting. He's not feeling compassion because these people need to be healed. He's not feeling compassion because these people need some sort of physical solution to a problem. He's feeling compassion because they don't know him. He's feeling compassion because they're wandering around trying to do life without him. He's looking at a group of people who are trying to figure out what truth is. He's looking at a group of people that are trying to do things their own way. He's looking at a group of people that are living in a world that seems to be getting darker and darker and they cannot find hope for their lives. And he looks at that group of people and he's so moved with compassion that his stomach begins to hurt. I don't know if you've realized, but not much has changed in the world that we live in. We got people who are trying to figure out their own way. We got people who are confused about what it means to live a successful life. We got people who are trying to climb ladders. We got people who, who are confused about, about all these different things that Jesus is very clear on. And my question to you today is when you look at those people in Nashville, does it make your stomach hurt too? Does it move you when we drive by the homeless people on the way to church on Sunday mornings? Does it move you when you have conversations with your coworker about how drunk they got on Broadway on Friday nights? Does it move you when you hear about your friend's divorce? Does it move you when you hear about people who are wandering, looking for a shepherd? I remember when... Um, when I first started uh, in ministry, I'd been preaching for about a year, and um, I got invited to this young uh, pastor's gathering. And basically, this pastor that I'd looked up to um, is actually the pastor that preached the YouTube sermon that I gave my life to Jesus through when I was in college. And this pastor, he reached out and invited myself and nine other young pastors to come and spend a weekend with him in Seattle, Washington. And so I'm so excited. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. I'm, I'm going to learn how to preach like T.D. Jakes. All right. I, I don't know if you know who T.D. Jakes is, but he's the man. I'm like, I'm going to learn how to preach and I'm going to learn how to uh, teach the Bible. I was so excited. I, I fly all the way to Seattle, Washington. I'm sitting in this room that was about half this size with myself and neither, nine other young preachers. And we're sitting in the room and we've got our notes out. We got our Bibles out. We're waiting for this man to come in and teach us. And he walks in the room and immediately we could tell something was wrong. Because this man who's normally the life of the party, he's like this joyful presence, this guy just full of charisma and funny and anointed and all these different things. He walks in the room and it's clear to us that he's been crying. 
It's clear to us that this man is choked up about something. And he walks up to the front. There was a little podium just like this. He put his Bible on the podium and he starts looking around the room and starts asking us questions. He says, how many of you in this room in the last week have fed one hungry person? Not a single one of us raised our hands. He said, how many of you in this room in the last week have shared the gospel with one person without a microphone in your hand? Not a single hand went up. He said, how many of you in this room in the last week have stopped to pray with one person, not in an altar? Not a single hand went up. He just continued to ask about a dozen questions just like that. He gets to the end of his two-minute question, asking rant. Not a single hand had gone up. He just starts weeping. He said, yeah, me neither. And I think that's the problem. And he picked up his Bible and he walked back out the door. I flew four and a half hours on a Spirit Airlines flight, <laughs> risking my life. If you fly Spirit, we just we hope to see you again. <laughs> I flew four and a half hours to learn how to be a better preacher, a better leader, a better communicator, a better teacher of God's word. And I learned in two and a half minutes that I was not moved for the things that caused Jesus's heart to move. I learned in two and a half minutes that I am really, really, really good at using the light God has given me in already lit rooms. I'm so good at that. Like, like my wife and I, for two years prior to moving to Nashville, we served at the same church as greeters. Every single Sunday that we were in town, when we weren't preaching somewhere else, we were as greeters at the front door. We had the coffee. We had the name tags. We had the smiles. I mean, we didn't even need the coffee. We were blessed and highly caffeinated on the Holy Spirit. We were excited to welcome people. I mean, we could do anything that, that our pastors asked us to do. If they wanted us to get on stage and encourage people, we could do it. If they wanted us to serve in kids, we could do it. If they wanted us to greet, we could do it. And, and thank God for all those things. But the moment God asked me to do something in a room that wasn't as bright as this room, in a place that it's not as easy to follow Jesus, it's not as easy to be bold, about Jesus, I just realized that I just got a little quiet. I made a few excuses. I'll do it next time. Today I'm busy. Ah, I don't want, I don't want to make a scene. I feel like I'm supposed to share the gospel with this person, but I have another opportunity. I have another chance. And if you aren't careful, you will someday yourself out of being used by God. Jesus looked at this crowd of people and he was moved. He was, he was moved. He looked at this crowd of people and he saw darkness. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot simply look at darkness. We cannot simply look at a dark world as our greatest opposition. We have to start looking at dark places as our greatest opportunity. You want to know what happens when you put Jesus in a dark place? There's no shadow that he won't light up. There's no mountain that he won't climb up. There's no blind person that won't get sight. No lame person that won't start walking. No, no dead person that won't come alive. You want to know what happens when you put Jesus in the city of Nashville? Families get restored. People come to know Christ. Eternities are changed forever. Why? Because in dark places, Jesus shines the brightest. We want to be a place that we shine on Sundays, but we shine even brighter in the darkest places, in the places that nobody wants to go, in the places where nobody wants to hang out, in the places that everyone goes, 
goes, no, that, that might mess up my reputation. Those are the places that Jesus went to first. That's the kind of church we're going to be. We're going to be a church. We are moved by the things that move Jesus' heart. We are touched by the things that Jesus spoke about. We're going to look at it in Matthew chapter 9. He was moved with compassion. The harvest is huge, but the workers are few. Where are the workers? We have this saying, we've already talked about it once today, Jesus is moving in Nashville because he clearly is. We actually, though, believe that he wants to do even more than he's already doing. That's, that's our posture here. We believe that God wants to do more, that he wants to do more, that every person in this city that is not a follower of Jesus, we believe God wants to move in their life, that God wants to bring them home, that, that God wants to see their life transformed forever. But if we're going to see that happen, like, like this is our vision. Our vision is that as we follow Jesus, that we would actually see the entire city of Nashville come to know Christ. That's our vision, because we believe that if that happened, only God could get the credit for it. If that happened, people, people everywhere would be like, what is happening in Nashville? And we'd be like, well, God is happening in Nashville. God is moving in Nashville. God is doing what he promised to do. The harvest is huge, but if we're going to see it, there has to be workers. Say this with me. No work, no harvest. No work, no harvest. This is why our vision at Way Church has very little to do with making attenders and way more to do with making disciples. Because there is a huge difference in being an attender and being a disciple. An attender comes to get. A disciple comes to give. An attender comes and and, and they come to consume, but a disciple comes to consume and contribute. An attender will let the pastor share the gospel. A disciple will share the gospel for themselves. An attender will come and listen. A disciple will go out and work for the harvest. A Sunday gathering is not the point of our faith. It's a part of our faith. The Sunday experience is not the mountaintop. The Sunday experience is the place we come to be recharged, to be refilled, to be reminded of why we're here, to be reminded of our community in in Christ, to be encouraged in the faith, to open up this book and receive a word. But then it's to go back and be the hands and feet of Jesus, to go to the dark places, to be the light in the city of Nashville. This is what we're trying to build. And so this is why every single week you hear people come up here and they're like, take your next step at Way Church. Why don't you come to Waytrack, which will happen next Sunday at 11.45. Robin, Robin will lead that. Come to Waytrack, because if you come to Waytrack, we can, we can disciple you. If you need to be baptized, we'll baptize you. If you want to join a uh, serve team here, the Waymakers, we'll have you join the team. It's incredible. This Sunday, uh, this morning at 8.20, we do our team huddles before you, um, everyone gets here. And in those team huddles, uh, the first one we ever did, we had two rows of volunteers right here. Uh, today, we literally took up half the room. It was amazing. I was like, wow, this looks like the first service that we had. Like, this is incredible. Because people are getting excited. They're like, I got to serve. And, and, and you know, you, serving on a Sunday doesn't make you a disciple. It's just one of the ways that you can say, God, I want to be used more than just being a, a part of, of the church and just listening on Sundays. Uh, God, I want to serve as a way maker. Maybe you're here and you care about outreach. We fed, we fed had 11,000 meals packed just last weekend. We would love for you to serve and outreach. We're just getting started. We think that in a couple years, in a couple months, we're going to look back on 11,000 meals and we're going, man, you remember when we only packed 11,000? Now we're packing 20,000. Now we're packing 30,000. We need people who care about the harvest and are willing to work. 
willing to work. God, God, it's not just about me. It's about others. It's not just about what God's doing in my life. It's about what he's doing in my city. So what, is it, what does it look like to be a worker? That's what I want to talk to you about. Three things that a worker needs to do. Number one, serve everybody. Serve everybody. The church cannot save anyone. Only Jesus can do that. But the church can serve everyone. The church can't save anyone, but it can serve everyone. Matthew chapter 10, right? Uh, same conversation that Jesus is having in Matthew chapter 9. It's just continued in Matthew chapter 10. He turns to his disciples and he starts charging them with a mission to go into these cities. This is what he says in the message translation. Don't begin by traveling to some far off place to convert unbelievers. And don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, catch this, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. Bring health to the sick, raise the dead, touch the untouchables, kick out the demons. You have been treated generously, so live generously. The first thing that I noticed is that the mission was local. It started local. Don't cross the sea if you can't cross the street. Don't post online if we're not loving our neighbor. It's got to start local. The second thing I noticed is that Jesus said, go to the untouchables. I love that. Go to the untouchables. Now, this isn't, he wasn't saying the, the people that he looked at as untouchable. He was, he was saying, go to the people that everybody else seems to think are untouchable. We did not start a church in Nashville, Tennessee to just go, let's just serve the people we want to serve. Let's just love the people we want to love. Let, let's just reach the people that look like us, talk like us, vote like us, think like us. When you do that, you're not reaping a harvest. You're building a club. We didn't come to build another club in Nashville, Tennessee. We are the local church. We are the body of Christ. We are serving everybody. We are loving everybody. We are going to go to the places that nobody else wants to go because Jesus did that in our life. While I was dead to sin, Christ died for me. When I was far away, a far ways off, Jesus came running to my life. I was the untouchable. So now I get to go to the places that nobody else wants to go. We got to serve everybody. We got we to be a solution to problems in our city. That's the first thing that a worker does. The second thing that a worker does is they move with urgency. Jesus said the harvest is plenty. And in this time, he's speaking to a group of pr predominantly farmers. 2,000 years ago, over 50% of the people living in Jerusalem and in the surrounding cities and towns would have had some sort of occupation in the farming area. They had to grow food. They had to sell food. They had to know how farming worked, which is why Jesus so often would use illustrations that had to do with agriculture and farming. Do we have any farmers in the room right now? Okay, we got one. We're not... You know, not a lot of farmers only people uh, here. Um, when, when, when these people were hearing Jesus talk about the harvest, they would have naturally got something that maybe we have to think about a little bit more. When they, when they heard Jesus say the harvest is plenty, there would have been a timeline attached to that statement. Because a farmer knows that, that farming is a seasonal thing. Meaning that there is a season to plant, there is a season to toil, and there is a season to harvest. Jesus is saying the harvest is plenty. He wasn't just saying that there's a lot of people that need to be reached with, with the message of the gospel. 
He was also saying there's a lot of people that need to be reached with the message of the gospel and there's a short amount of time that you have to do it. There's a short amount of time. We got to move with urgency because the clock is ticking. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. I'm a big NBA basketball fan. I love the Boston Celtics. If you, if you want to buy me tickets for Christmas, amazing. Man, that just feels like a word. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I love the Boston Celtics. I, I love watching the NBA, but I've noticed something about NBA basketball players, and it kind of drives me crazy. They only play hard the last five minutes of the game. I mean, if you watch an NBA basketball game, it does not matter. They do not care. The, the, the games are 48 minutes long. In the first 43 minutes, they're taking selfies with celebrities, it feels like, during the game. I mean, they're waving at people. They're throwing alley-oops, all these lazy passes, and it drives me crazy. But when the clock gets down to about five minutes, the intensity ramps up. I mean, these guys who could care less 10 minutes ago are now, they're just 110% effort. They're diving on the floor. They're, they're like going all out. They're drenched in sweat because the lower the clock gets, the more urgent they seem to be. And I think we have a lot of believers who are not urgently reaching their neighborhoods and sharing the gospel because they think they've got a lot of time left on the clock. Can I just remind you what Jesus said? He said that no man knew, knows the hour or the day that the Lord is coming back. And so, you know, Jesus could come back before this sermon's over. That'd be amazing. Jesus might not come back in our lifetime. That, that's just the truth because we don't know. But let me, tell, let me put it this way. Just because you might have more time on the clock does not mean that your neighbor does. Just because you might be young and feel invincible and feel like you have your whole life ahead of you, one, that, that might not be true. Unfortunately, people die young. It's a tragedy. Not like up here to doom and gloom, but, but I, I just want you to know, like you might be interacting with someone who's, whose clock is ticking low, which is just another reason we gotta be urgent. We gotta treat every conversation. This might be the last conversation I have. I gotta inject some hope into their life. I gotta preach Jesus. If I don't know how to share the gospel, I gotta watch some YouTube videos. I gotta ask Pastor Noah. I gotta get equipped. I gotta go to Waytrack. I gotta ask Robin Robin. I gotta learn to share the gospel because lives are at stake. Do you feel the urgency? Do you feel it? I, I, I'm terrified of getting to heaven one day and realizing I missed a chance with somebody because I thought that I just had more time. We gotta be urgent. I, I have a mentor. He says this all the time. He says, Noah, when you really believe the truth of the gospel and the implications of believing it, you move with urgency because you realize what happens when you don't. If we really believe that Jesus loves us and loves our neighbor, we got to tell him. We got to share the gospel. I, I'm, I'm so thankful for our church. There's so many people who do this so well. I, I was on a, a ministry trip recently with my friend Dylan Soller. He's amazing. I'm not going to point at him because he hates the extra attention, but he serves as our kids coordinator, him and his wife. I was on this ministry trip. I went to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom. I was in there for 30 seconds and I come back and this dude is sitting across the table sharing the gospel with a complete stranger at the airport. And, and I'm, I'm telling you right now, this is not like somebody who looked like they'd ever been to church. Like this is not one of those conversations where it was like he, he got to ease into the conversation. I mean, this person, I walked up and she's talking about uh, the things she worships in her house. And she dropped about four F-bombs by the time I got to the table. I mean, this, this girl, she had, she had some crazy stuff going on in her life. And Dylan Soller's standing there and he's like, I gotta tell you about what changed my life. Better yet, I gotta tell you 
about who changed my life. And he just starts going. And that lady, she didn't give her life to Christ right then, but you know what I believe? Dylan planted a seed in her life that someone else is gonna come and water, maybe in another city at another time, but we're gonna see that girl in heaven because he was willing to do the uncomfortable, hard thing. Can you imagine what would happen if 400 people in Nashville, Tennessee decided I'm gonna do the hard thing? I'm gonna be interruptible. I'm gonna live with urgency. I'm gonna care about my neighbor enough to be a little uncomfortable in the short term, but to make heaven crowded in the long term. Come on. We gotta move with urgency. Number three, we can't avoid our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, nine, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. A worker will always have to fight the insecurity inside that says that we have to become more in order to be used by God. There is this pressure that happens. I don't know if it's American Christian culture or what, because I, I don't see this pressure in every country, but especially in America, in America, there's this pressure, this feeling like you have to be perfect in order to be used by God. Perfection would only cause you to do ministry without God. God has called you to do things and he will never call you to do something that you don't need him and his help for. This is how God works. He calls you, and then whatever he calls you to is too big for you to do on your own, and you have to rely on him. If you don't need God for it, he didn't call you to it. It might be a passion. It might be a desire. It might be a random thing in your life. But if it doesn't require a dependency on the Lord, God didn't call you to it. I felt this tension when I started following Jesus. I felt like very early on, um, just a couple weeks in uh, to following Jesus, that God wanted me to start a Bible study. And uh, I was like, man, God, I don't know if I'm your guy. Um, a little bit of, of my story is when I was in the first grade, uh, I actually had such a bad uh, lisp and stutter in the first grade that my, um, my first grade teacher had a parent-teacher conference with my parents and um, myself, and we're sitting there, and she told my parents that I needed to go to speech therapy classes or be homeschooled because she said that when I would raise my hand in class, I couldn't answer the questions. I would, I would stutter and, and pause uh, for so long that I was being bullied in the first grade and she was worried about my mental health, you know, confidence, whatever. And so she tells this to my parents while I'm sitting there. And so uh, for the next 10 years of my life, I literally went to speech therapy class every uh, single Tuesday and Thursday after school to learn how to talk. As you can imagine, that planted deep insecurity in me about whether I could or could not talk. I find it so interesting that as soon as I gave my life to Jesus, the first thing he wanted me to do was to talk. <laughs> because God wants you to have to rely on him. This is what this whole series is about. When you only say yes to God in the areas that you're really confident in, in the areas that you're really strong in, the glory that God can get from your life is actually diminished. Because people can go, oh, they're talented. That's why that's happening. Oh, they're gifted. Oh, that, that's not a struggle for them. That's, that's not something that they have to, you know, try really hard in because they're just really good at that. And so they look at your life and they see the things that are happening and they see the relationships and they see the fruit and they just go, that's them. But when you say yes to God in your areas of weakness, 
When you say yes to God in areas of uncomfortableness, when you say yes to God in areas that cause God to show up, people look at your life and they go, how did you do that? How did you say that? How did that happen? And every single time you can go, only God, only God, only God. It's by the Holy Spirit living inside me. It's because I met a man named Jesus who told me everything that I ever had done, who who came into my life and turned my weakness into strength, who turned my uncomfortableness into his glory, who did things through my life that only he could get the credit for. That's what we're called to do, but you cannot see that happen if you try to hide your weakness. I put it this way. God is not looking for impressive people. He's looking for available people that he can be impressive through. God wants to be impressive through you. God doesn't want to make you impressive. My favorite, one of my favorite quotes is from a man named Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors ever. He said this, the great temptation for Christians is to strive to be impressive. Who would not want to be seen in that light? The issue is that impressive people become tired people quickly who are limited by their own self-sufficiency. No, I'd much rather be ordinary. If I can focus less on being impressive and a little bit more aware of my dependency on God, I will see things happen in my life that make a real soul level impact. So today and every day, my prayer is not that you see an impressive Dallas. My prayer is that you see an impressive God. Man. Dallas Willard, one of the greatest writers, greatest thinkers ever. He said, I don't want you to be impressed by me. I want you to be impressed by God. It's powerful. A couple weeks ago, we, uh, we talked about this, this passage of scripture where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. How many of you were here for that Sunday? Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And I told you that I watched like 20 hours of YouTube videos on sheep. I'm now in the top 1% of sheep experts in the world. I watched all these videos on sheep and one of the things that I learned from watching those videos that I didn't share that Sunday, but it's been just kind of bouncing around in my mind the last several weeks is that the task that a shepherd does more than any other task is counting. The thing that they do more than any other thing is they count sheep. This is where the term counting sheep comes from. You're right, you heard that term? Anybody ever counted sheep to fall asleep? Shepherds count sheep because it's their job. And what I found so interesting is they do this all throughout the day, nonstop, nonstop. And they don't count the sheep to see who's there. They count the sheep to see who's not there. When we announced that we were gonna plant a church in Nashville, Tennessee, we, we actually had a lot of pushback on that. Um, a lot of people were upset that we wanted to plant a church here because it's the South and there are more churches here. And every time someone would ask us, you know, why, why are you going to Nashville? We didn't put it in these words because I hadn't watched those videos then, but this is how I'm gonna answer it now. I'm gonna say, because we counted. What do you mean you counted? We counted that if every single person in Nashville tried to go to church on Sunday morning, and if every single church building had services, if, if every single church in church building had six services a Sunday, those six services would not be able to contain all of the people that are living in Nashville, Tennessee. In fact, you would have to have four times that amount of services just to fit the people that live in the Nashville city limits. We counted. We counted who's not here. If you were a part of our vision nights, all of our vision, it was not 
we want to take people from other churches and that's not what our vision was. Our vision was we want to create a community that unbelievers want to be a part of. We want to be a church that shares the gospel. We want to be a church that serves the city. We want to be a church that believes that God has to show up because what we're not looking to do is have a club. We're looking to be a place that can host revival in our city. We're counting who's not here. I can tell you right now, I got a whole list of people, just people that I'm friends with who live in this city that are not a part of a church that aren't following Jesus. People that I'm praying for in our Only God series, believing that they're gonna just show up to church one Sunday, that, that I'm gonna just have an opportunity to share the gospel even this week. I, I'm just believing that God is gonna, gonna save them radically. Are you counting? Who's missing? Who needs to be here? My, my takeaway from this message is I'm pleading you to share the gospel. Like, I hope that you invite people to church. That's amazing. I, I pray you bring them, have them sit next to you. That'd be amazing. But really, like, I don't care what church they go to. Like, I love our church. There's amazing churches in Nashville. They can go to any of them. I just want them to know Jesus. Are you counting? Are you counting? Are you counting? Are you counting? Will you close your eyes? I want to read this text with your eyes closed. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus, his stomach hurts. He looks at the crowd of people. He says, we got to pray that more workers will show up. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he makes the disciples the answer to their own prayer. He sends them out, the workers into the harvest field. My encouraging close to this sermon is to tell you that if Nashville is going to be changed for Jesus, nobody else is coming. If your coworkers are going to come to know Jesus, nobody else is coming. If your family is going to come to know Jesus, nobody else is coming. But nobody else has to because the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and Jesus wants to make you the answer to your own prayer for our city. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for choosing us for such a time as this. Thank you for putting us in Nashville, Tennessee and the surrounding areas, God. We are grateful that we get to be a part of your mission for our city. We are thankful for what you're doing, but God, we're believing that you're gonna do more. God, we pray right now that you would use us to turn the light on in Nashville, Tennessee, to turn the light on in Franklin, Tennessee and in Brentwood and in East Nashville and in Hendersonville and in all of the surrounding areas. God, we pray that you would use us, burden our hearts, break our hearts, our hearts for what breaks yours, God. I pray that we would move with urgency, that we would allow our weakness to shine, God, that we would actually serve people who everybody else seems to think are untouchable, God, that you would use us.